Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello, and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. On today's episode, I'm pleased to welcome thriller writer J. Todd Scott, author of Lost River. With 27 years on duty under his badge, Todd has served his country as a DEA agent. However, in his spare time, he's also crafted a number of crime stories that will literally leave you breathless. As you'll soon learn, Todd and I share a good many likes besides writing. They include craft beer, good bourbon, and Elmore Leonard. Despite working in a dangerous business where drug dealers and corrupt businessmen prevail, you're about to meet a man who's as easy to hang out with as a swing on a big old front porch. What do you say you and I get in the thriller zone? I'll admit I started a little bit of um, Instagram stalking earlier, and I'm like, oh, I have a mutual craft beer fan lover. Yes, yes, I like craft beer and I like bourbon, so... Two things that are probably not very healthy for me at all. <laughs> uh, you know, life is short, though, right? Well, if I drink enough of those, it'll be a lot shorter. <laughs> I had my DEA physical today. Every year they give us a, you know, an automatic physical. And I've been an agent for, you know, a long time now. And all the, every, all that's happened is my weight's gone up and my eyesight's gone gone down. So that's that's basically what my experience has been. Weight up, eyesight down. Not a great combination, is it? No, def- definitely not. Well, let's uh, jump on into it. Um, okay. The author of The Far Empty, High White Sun, This Side of Night, and what we're going to discuss today, Lost River, we are with J. Todd Scott. Hello and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Man, I'll tell you, I'm going to start out of the gate by saying that this book was dark. Let's let's pull up my prop. Dark, gritty, <laughs> and haunting. And uh, I'm one of those guys that I'm always trying. Here's the uh, here's the cover for those watching it. Love right. it. love this cover. Yeah. Um, I'm one of those guys that always trying to figure out a different way to put it. And when I I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna impress Todd by uh, coming up with a different word than gritty. So I uh, went and looked it up, and I'm like, uh, well. If you go to a thesaurus, it comes up with words like, you know, dusty and, and, <laughs> and lumpy. And I'm like, God, that doesn't really say what I'm looking for. So I'm going to stick with gritty. Yeah, No, I think I think that's fair. And, um, you know, I don't really start out writing a particular type of book. And, you know, it, it's interesting. This the Lost River has garnered that reaction more than the other three, that it's a, it's kind of a dark book and a gritty book. I mean, the other books were set in the, on the border in West Texas. I don't know if you get much darker or grittier than dealing with cartels and corrupt corrupt cops there. Uh, but for some reason, this book has kind of been pegged as darker than those, uh, rawer than those. I don't know. I mean, you can insert whatever word you want. I didn't write it that way. I didn't see it that way. Um, but, you know, I, I thought the book ended on a note of hope and some other stuff. But um, I think people have to wade through a lot of darkness before they get to that point. Of it. Yeah. And I thought it was particularly dark until I got to the scene when they uh, and this isn't giving anything away. When you walk into that trailer and uh, there's a mass um, annihilation, the I think what caught me off guard was the fact that the faces were blown away. And that's uh, 
good way to hide your identity. But boy, I was like, it took me a while to. Yeah, you know, and, and the violence in the book is again raw and gritty. It's not anything that I haven't seen in my years of of being a federal agent. So it doesn't strike me necessarily as over the top, right? Um, and, and, and to some extent, it's it's admittedly done a little bit for effect because you want that kind of, you know, hit people in, in, in the face with it, particularly if you surround it with kind of normal, you know, day-to-day living sort of stuff. And then this violence suddenly appears, which is often how in my career it, it ends up, you know, but I, I don't try to write violent books. I don't really try to write dark books. That's just kind of where, where I land on, on a lot of these things. Sure. Well, it's visceral, that's for sure. And it, it is attention getting. Uh, I read a Let's see a quote, New York Times bestselling author, Craig Johnson, who wrote Longmire, which is, God, one of my all-time favorites. And the series was, early days was impeccable. He said of the far empty that so good he wished he had written it. And I'm like, can you think of any higher praise than that? And, and, you know, and I feel the same way about uh, Craig's books and, and many authors who I've gotten to, to know and obviously have spent my, my life reading. And, you know, I kind of backed into this author thing. I, I sometimes don't really consider myself an author or a writer. Uh, you know, I just say I'm, a, I'm an agent who happens to write you know, a federal agent who happens to write. I don't really consider myself a writer, but I guess four novels into it and, and more on the way, um, you know, my family and friends say it's all right. I can call myself an author now if I want to. Yeah, yeah, You please, please do, because uh, <laughs> the stuff is good. And, you know, there are a lot of people who spend their entire lives trying to uh, do it on the side and, and, and hope and hustle and of one day being called that. And, and I like the fact that you said you kind of backed into it, but uh, we'll just keep backing away. Yeah. And, and each book is, is new for me. And I learn with each book, Lost River is a little bit different, you know, and kind of how it's structured and tonally than the three that came before it. So, you know, I think to some extent coming at this kind of later in life and without a lot of preconceived notions and not really knowing what I'm doing kind of makes it easy to do it because I just kind of write what interests me and write it in a way that interests me and hope other people, you know, uh, like it as well. That's a great way to look at it and a great way to approach it in that I think I follow some people who have done massive education, uh, creative writing, masters and so forth, and they've spent literally decades trying to master the craft and still can't get recognized. And I think to myself, does that matter? Uh, Does the education matter? You know, these days, people get picked up for any number of reasons. Picked up meaning represented or their book snagged for a TV movie or series. And it's basically because it resonated with the audience, like you're talking about. They resonated, uh, it gained popularity, and they backed into it as well uh, after the fact. Right. And I think that, you know, anyone who says luck, or timing isn't part of this, you know, career, you know, is deluding themselves. It, it clearly, it clearly is. You, you know, you put the right manuscript in front of the right agent or editor at the right time. And if you were a day late, you know, a day earlier, or a day later, it may, may not have worked out. I mean, that's just, that's just part of it. And I think what happens to a lot of people, there's definitely, for me, an experience, the, the difference between the art of writing and the business of publishing. And those are two very, very different things. And you hope that they kind of cross. And, and when you get a published book, they do. But the fact is, very often they don't. And if you get too overwhelmed by the business of publishing or over-indexing on the business of publishing, I think it makes writing very hard. 
And so because I kind of came at this late and didn't have any formal writing, you know, except back when I was in college um, and really didn't know much about the publishing industry and didn't think a lot about, you know, how to be published or, or would I be published or, or how many books I needed to sell. Then I kind of, again, that kind of naivete, you know, naivete or stupidity, whatever you want to call it, you know, kind of allowed me to fall forward into this Um and not really worry too much about the business side of it, you know, the publishing and how many books you sell and are you successful and stuff like that. But the longer you do it, the more that, that, that becomes part of it, obviously. Well, then, then that begs the question, how long did it take you? How, how many rejections did you get? It's a classic uh, a question from all of us who are trying to get published. How many rejections did it take before someone said, yeah, this is it. Well, I was looking for an agent and I did all of this. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit by looking it up on the internet. I, you know, I, I wrote, I wrote a book and I didn't think it was too bad. And so I said, well, if I had a book and wanted to get it published, what would I do? Well, you got to go get an agent. You know, I've read interviews with other, other authors. And so I looked on the internet, how to get an agent, how to write a query letter and, and just kind of followed what other people did. And when I started sending out the query letter for, for that book, I realized because I was getting responses relatively quick. I said, well, I can, clearly I can write a pretty good query letter. I don't know if anybody wants to buy my book or, or represent me as an agent, but I can write a query letter. And so I got interest right away on my query letters, but it probably took uh, eight to 10 months to, to get it, to get an agent. And, you know, I had a couple of near misses, close calls, things like that, but I kind of knew I was in the ballpark, you know, right out of the gate. And then that first book, you know, uh, my agent, uh, Carly Weber, who's still my agent now, um, she took me on that first book and, you know, I was ready to you know, quit my job and, and dust off the shelf for awards and everything else. But you still have to sell a book. I mean, just because you didn't have an agent. Sure. And as I've said before, that book actually didn't sell. We got a lot of very nice no's, but it didn't sell. And so I was writing a sequel to that book um, and realized I was had a book that wasn't selling. I was writing a sequel to a book that wasn't selling. So I don't know why I was writing a sequel. <laughs> and, uh, that's when I wrote The Far Empty and wrote that for me relatively quick. And then that sold in about three weeks. Oh, uh, wow. That, that got immediate interest. But again, those timetables are just, you know, I know people who, who you know, everybody's path is different. I, I, I got very lucky, just kind of, the, again, the right place at, at the right time. And people were, there was a couple of authors who came up around the same time I did, Brian Panowich and David Joy, and we were kind of all doing similar stuff, kind of, um, but in different parts of the country. And I think we all kind of helped each other in the sense that as people read Brian's book and got interested in that, then they would find David and then find me and vice and vice versa. So we all kind of got some attention and got published within a few years of each other. Wow. That's interesting. So if the far empty, which was what 2016, if that was the first one that picked up, what's the one that never sold? And and is it still sitting around on the shelf or yeah, it's still sitting around. The, the title of that book is a sharper dark and it's actually more of a, of a, a ghost story, honestly, than, than a pure crime novel it has a crime in it, obviously, but it tracks a little more, I don't want to say horror, but, but that's got more, I guess, more of the beats. And curiously enough, that book was then option for a, a TV series. So even though it, it never was published as a book, you know, as I got, as The Far Empty got published and I got kind of sucked into doing some Hollywood things and, and got hired to, to write a film and do some other stuff, people start asking you, well, what do you, what else do you have? What do you have lying around? 
And I'm like, well, I got this unpublished book. If you want to take a look at it and some people read it, then they're like, you know what? That sounds pretty good. You know, we'll throw some money at you to, to, to hold on to that. And hey, would you like to write a pilot for that? So um, I did. And, and that's that's knocking around. So it, it was never published as a book, but maybe you'll see it as a TV series. I don't know. Wow. Jeez, dude, you're living you're living the dream. You, and you, you toss it aside like, yeah, so I'm, you know, I wrote this book and. Yeah, they picked it up. That's a phrase I had. I lived in Hollywood a couple of times, and that was a phrase that you heard all the time. Uh, oh, what else you got? Mm-hmm. Oh, what well, else yeah, you got? That, yeah, that's how it worked. And and the the movie that I wrote was because I knew some people who liked me and and kind of pitched it my way. And I, I wrote an audio series. But you know, if you've been out in Hollywood and you've worked out there a, a little bit, you realize very quickly how um, uh, ephemeral that stuff is. Sure. Right. I mean. You know, it doesn't take a whole lot for them to hire you to write a, to write a screenplay or, or, or do whatever. And you can't believe or assume in any way, shape or form that it's actually going to, to get made. Um, so, yeah. you know, it, that's why you can be kind of blase about it because, I mean, sure, you know, I, got, I, I wrote this thing. Maybe you'll see the light of day. Maybe it won't. Uh, but I got the great experience of writing it. And, and, and that's that's the fun part of it. Awesome. I'm going to adjust my camera so that my head will be down like yours, too. Yeah, well, you know, my camera fell down. You know, highly, you know, just like a federal agent. If I was doing a dope deal, my undercover wire wouldn't work, you know. (laughs) All right, let's let's dive into this because these are things that uh, I've got a question down here that I'm going to get to that is the number one question that's been burning through my head. But let's back up a second and and introduce my audience to Special Agent Casey Alexander, Trey, the medic in training, and then former police chief Paul Mayfield. Now, just tell me a, a, a brief little synopsis and and about these three and, and what they're trying to solve and or hide, because it feels like they're both, all three, trying to solve and hide something simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, Trey is, is a young man who's kind of trapped in his eastern Kentucky town of Angel, and he's actually the first voice I had for the book, and he kicks off the book. Uh, and, and for those who haven't read it narratively the book is kind of like a baton it's passed between these these characters throughout the night it basically despite the size of the book it really only takes place over about a 24 hour hour period and trey is our first um viewpoint of angel kentucky where where he is and um as a kid who's trapped there whose father's kind of abandoned the family whose mother uh we learned is struggling with addiction of her own uh he is a character who's an amalgam of people that i i had met as i had worked my own overdose cases as a federal agent so i just thought it was important to have that that voice and a, a viewpoint from the town that we were kind of inhabiting. Uh, and then Casey Alexander is a, um, a federal agent, a DEA agent who actually is from Kentucky, uh, but has re- been out West, much like actually I, I have been for, for a good chunk of my career and has come back home to Kentucky to find it much different than when than when she left and is kind of deeply embroiled in um you know, the, the drug trafficking cases that are right there around Angel, which actually sits on the Kentucky-West uh, Virginia border. And this book of the four that I've written, although the other three touch a bit on DEA, you can't write about the border and not and not mention DEA. This is the first book that's had a, a the main character, you know, a point of view, significant point of view character, be a, a federal agent, a DEA agent. So a lot of, of how Casey approaches this case and what she does is, is very typical for how we would approach, how I would approach a case if I was in in her shoes and and what she's doing. And then the last kind of main character is Paul Mayfield. And and by the time we have come to him, he's um, kind of retired police chief for Angel. 
his wife has passed away. He's remarried a younger, a younger woman uh, who's struggling with some demons and addictions of her own. And he was a really, he was a hard character to write, but, but one of the more interesting of the three, because he represented um, a lot of people that I have met in these overdose, you know, opioid cases, person who's struggling with a loved one who has an addiction and someone whose natural bent is toward law and order and things like that. And yet now he's got a young wife who's struggling with it. And, um, you know, the kind of compromises you make with yourself when you see someone go down, you know, fall down this rabbit hole. And, um, it, you know, it's not, as an older guy kind of raised in a different era, he really struggles with, uh, this and the compromises that he, that he, that he has to do for this woman that he's come, that he's come to love. So I, the, all three characters, I think, give a different view of the opioid crisis. And that's kind of what I was trying to do. I, I wanted to have this kind of kaleidoscope effect of, of different viewpoints, each, uh, kind of bringing their own views and opinions and, um, you know, injuries to, to the issue. Well, mission accomplished. That's one of the things I really liked about it is that you you do feel like it, it could almost have been done in three separate first person passages. Right. And and I love the fact that it was over 24 hours because uh, it, it, it uh, helped drive that frantic pace and you you kept Knowing that it was all going to be taking place in one span of time, you kept wondering, okay, what she was going to drop next. Now, what was your inspiration behind that, making it one day? Um, well, it was actually kind of a uh, part of what you said. I, I wanted that kind of clock ticking and that sense of scrambling. I've been in situations where you're involved in a crime and you're trying, you know, you're playing catch up and you're, you're trying to, to put the pieces of a puzzle together. And, and, and even in dope crimes, and this one had kind of dope and, and murder involved in it, but, you know, you only have a, a limited amount of time to kind of get your arms, arms around what's going on. So I like that kind of ticking clock. And then at, from a simple narrative kind of test myself standpoint, my other books were kind of sprawling and big and, and, and long, very long. And I wanted to see if I could write a book that took place over a much smaller amount of time with these multiple viewpoints and just kind of challenge myself to see if I could do it. I, you know, each book you want to try to get better, each book you want to learn something new. And I thought and I thought it would be an interesting way to tell the story. I could have told it like I'd written all the other books. But for me, I thought it would be um, fun to tackle it a different way to see if I could do it. Here's an interesting question. So the the one that was released in 16, the Far Empty, a longer book. Did you when you were uh, being first represented, did was were you in a pocket of, hey, uh, Todd, just, you know, as long as you want. The reason I ask that is it seems to me for a larger part, that books are getting shorter. Uh, they're not quite as languorous as they used to be. And I don't know if that's because of uh, paper, economics, publishing, or uh, attention spans. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough that Putnam was very uh, supportive and positive about the books that I wrote. But clearly, they were, they're long, and they are at the outside of what you would want for a, a crime a suspense novel, a genre novel. Clearly, and they got longer. And I think from a business standpoint, from a publishing standpoint, I realized that it was important to, um, you know, kind of try to shorten some of these books and get them down a little bit. But but I was, you know, because people don't really want to invest 
in a 124,000 word book if they can help it, uh, which is what, um, you know, some of those later books were. So I, I worked very hard to kind of try to bring my page count down, not be indulgent. Uh, you know, I like writing, so I like to write as much as I can sure. and try to, you know, get these books down to more 85, 95,000 words, which I think for a mystery crime suspense thriller novel, that's really where you want to be. You know what I'm loving about talking to you is uh, the fact that you really have, from what it sounds like, gone your own way, worked by your own rules, done it the way you wanted to do it and didn't really. And, and maybe that's part of the magic of when you said earlier about not knowing how things were done. It makes me wonder if the just intrinsic gut of who you are won because you're like, ah, this is the way I'm going to, it's almost like, well, I got nothing to lose. So let me just throw it all out there. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, again, I think it, it's partly a function of where I am in my own personal life. I, I came at this late and um, I have a, a, a career that I'm proud of and do. And so writing truly started for me as a hobby and, and, and I don't want to, to to minimize how much I enjoy it and, and the lucky, wonderful successes that I've had and all of that. But I don't have to write to keep the lights on. I don't have to. And I'm willing to be pretty agnostic about a book. So if a book doesn't work, then I just pitch it aside and go to the next one. Right. I, so I'm kind of immune to the business pressures. And this is why I was talking about there's a difference between writing and publishing. Um, you know, obviously I would want to be published and want to keep putting out books and, and things like that, but I don't really use that much of a driver for the books that I write um, other than just kind of acknowledging some of the uh, genre criteria, which is, you know, if you want to broaden your base and get people to read your books and be willing to just kind of take a flyer on them, I think it helps to have them be a little a little shorter. And plus I can write them faster if they're a, a little shorter. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I do kind of have this attitude of, you know, if people love the book and the publisher wants to publish it, great. If they don't, well, I'll just write the next book because right. I'm going to write either way, you know? And so um, I try not to get too uh, overwhelmed by the business side of it and uh, don't let that factor into the books that I, that I write to the extent you can. Well, you, you, you got the whole, you got the perfect line there. I'm going to write anyway. Right. <laughs> you can show, you can show up and follow me along. Yeah. Or you can hit the bricks. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, for me, I have to enjoy what I'm doing. I have to enjoy the writing and it still is a, a kind of a, a hobby because I, sure. you know, I write in the morning and then go off to my, my career, my day job, uh, all the rest of the day. So, um, you know, I, that I figure I have you know, everyone, it's funny because everybody you talk to is like, Hey, the best thing they want to do is quit their day job and write full time. And I kind of feel differently. I'm like, I have the best of both worlds. I have a very significant career and it takes a lot of time, but it also affords me the ability to write the books I want to, and then not worry whether, you know, they fly or not. Yeah. You know, I don't have to worry about paying life insurance if, if a book doesn't sell. <laughs> I'm sitting here looking at a map and I realize how close, what part of uh, Kentucky did you grow up in? Well, I grew up in, well, I was born in Paducah and I was raised in Louisville. Um, and so uh, Paducah's Western Kentucky, which is actually closer to where Casey Alexander from the book is from. Yeah. And then Angel is Eastern Kentucky. And that's about two hours or so from where I'm sitting right now. Okay. Because what's interesting is 
I'm now at home in Kentucky. I, I When I wrote Lost River, I was still living out west and then got transferred, as I have many times with DEA, and got transferred home. So I'm now here in Kentucky for the first time in many, many years. And I was living here when that book came out. Uh, and I never imagined I would be back here when I wrote it. So That is awesome. So I grew up in a little town called Lynchburg, Virginia. Yep. Very familiar with it. Yeah. So your so your angel is pretty close to that. And uh, yeah, I've spent enough time in Louisville and actually over to Paducah, which is right there at the Shawnee National Forest, isn't it? Yeah. Gorgeous part of the country. Anyway. Well, so- well Virginia's beautiful too. I went to William and Mary undergrad. That's where I and so uh my oh. my sister went to UVA. So we have long roots uh all throughout Virginia with with friends that we know from our college days. Nice. Yeah, you can't beat the Blue Ridge Mountains. And and listening to your accent makes me want to pull mine out a little bit because, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up with that. And my, I go back home and I talk to my family. What y'all, what you doing today? How come you, what happened to your accent? No, and mine lit back up when I moved back home. It's funny, it, I, when I would visit and come back, it was almost like I had to be deprogrammed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd get my accent back and and all that, yeah. and uh, now it's come back full force since I since I live here again. I had to deprogram mine because my first career was radio, and you couldn't walk in to do a radio show and sound like that because you know unless you're going to have your show in Virginia or Kentucky. Right. <laughs> so here's the question that I wanted to start off with: uh, What made you want to become a DEA agent? And here's why that affected me. Uh, why I thought of that so much because. I, I'm thinking to myself, you've seen some of the darkest side of humanity, and uh, I can't even fathom. And I, I've got a pretty good idea, having read Lost River, that this is uh, something you've seen a part of. But what what made you uh, want to become an agent, and how far back did you feel that calling, if you will? I, I felt it as far back as college. Now, admittedly, in high school, in the first part of college, I thought about I wanted to be a writer. And, 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 you know, I wrote a bunch of uh, nonsense and horrible short stories and things like that and, and thought uh, briefly about going and getting a master's in, in writing after I, I graduated from college. I was kind of aiming that way a little bit. Um, and then I, I was working a, as a waiter, actually, in a, a, a kind of resort just outside of Williamsburg. It's kind of a, a job I did part time on the weekends and stuff to make extra money. And it was a place where presidents and other kind of dignitaries would stay you know, if they were outside of DC. Mm-hmm. And so I got to talk to quite a few um, secret service agents and just because I was there bringing them, you know, sandwiches and things like that. Sure. And also when I was growing up, I met an FBI agent out in, in uh, that my grandfather introduced me to. So having talked to these guys after a while, I thought, man, that sounds like a pretty interesting job and, you know, probably a little more lucrative than, than trying to write to keep a roof over my head. And honestly, I'd like to say that it was some big noble calling, but at the that point it really was and i'd watched uh, miami vice and and lethal weapon and i thought well i could do that stuff that looks pretty cool and i just did i applied right out of college and um it took a little while to get on just because it takes a while to get to get hired on so i i uh, lived up in dc and worked up there for a while and and, and got my law degree but uh, i just kind of kept updating my stuff with them and and finally they called and said, Hey, we got an academy class. You want to go? And I dropped everything and went and um, figured if it didn't work out, well, I'll just go back to doing what I was doing. And if I, if I did okay, then I was going to get a badge and gun and be an agent. And it worked out okay. And they gave me a letter and said, congratulations, you're on your way to Los Angeles. And so that was my first posting was 
LA in the mid nineties. Um, and I got off a plane with a, with a mullet and uh, a shoulder holster, uh, like I'd seen on TV and was ready for my Porsche and my boat and all those things that I thought <laughs> came with the job. None of which did, by the way, my, my first, uh, undercover vehicle was a, a Ford Aerostar van, which was not exactly what I envisioned, but, um, and I have not regretted it since. I, I've had a fantastic career. I've moved a lot and, and, and lived all over the world. But um, I still am surprised that our government gave me a badge and gun all those years ago and set me loose on, on the streets. Well, the drug world that is in this book is alarming and it's frightening, to be perfectly frank. And the opioid crisis, as we've known and seen in the headlines, is no friggin' joke. Where would you rank it in in the world of drugs as it pertains to, say, availability and its uncontrollable nature? Well, I think it, it, it is truly uh, an epidemic. And, and I think the la- latest numbers over this last year, 93,000 people passed away uh, from overdoses. I think at the time I wrote, wrote the book, um, it was, you know, 70,000 roughly a year. Uh, it's like nothing I've ever seen. And, and that's coming from someone who's worked, you know, Colombian, uh, cartels and Mexican cartels and, and, and significant drug trafficking organizations all over the world. It really is a scourge and much like it's reflected in the book, it hits all socioeconomic classes. It hits families. It hits everyone. Um, it's that, and, and, you know, we saw a little bit of kind of the cusp of this a few years ago with the pain clinics that were, you know, kind of pill mills and sure. things like that, that, that were popping up on, on the news. But I don't think anyone envisioned where we would be now. And, and obviously it's been exacerbated by the prevalence of fentanyl. Uh, you know, you had the, the pills and then the heroin and then back to the pills and now the fentanyl, which is adulterating everything. And it, it's so cheap and it's so potent. And, and unfortunately, it's relatively easy to get your hands on despite, you know, our efforts in law enforcement. And it's really, um, uh, you know, kind of attacked all segments of society. And, and honestly, I think that the COVID pandemic this last year made it made it worse. People kind of being alone, cut off. I mean, I think the anecdotal evidence suggests that the pandemic uh, ramped up some of those uh, uh, problems that uh, opioids um, are so often, you know, people turn to so often uh, to, to try to solve. Well, it's so sneaky. It's such a, it seems so innocuous. Oh, I've got this pain and I'll just take these pills and they're so readily available. And all of a sudden, oh, I, I really need those. I need more of those. And it's a, it's a slippery slope that gets slipperier by the moment, doesn't it? Right. And, and I tried to show that in Lost River, where you had characters who were addicts, um, not necessarily by choice. They didn't wake up one morning and say, I, I want to be an addict, right? They had other issues or other problems or were taking pills for other reasons and slipped down that slope. And we've seen that that many times. And so, you know, it's a unique drug problem because it affects so many people's families in so many different ways. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of the, uh, you know, the substance abuse disorder. It's one of the tougher drugs just, you know, pharmacologically, biochemically to get over and, and, and to, to, to beat from a uh, drug rehabilitation standpoint. So uh, I don't have easy answers. Well, and, you know, some, having grown up as we both did in small towns, uh, I think there's a bit of it that is... Um, 
And I've noted, we, uh, my wife and I were at a, visiting a small town recently, and we ran into a gaggle of folks that were clearly uh, meth-affected. And what we talked about was the fact that sometimes we just think there's such a boredom factor. They're living in these small towns or they don't have great jobs and they're just bored and they get high and it just goes from there. Yeah, well, yeah, I think what it is is it's a, it's an escape. And, um, and and again, that's kind of what it's shown, at least in some of the folks that we we kind of pass by in, in Lost River. They use it as an escape. And they're usually in these small towns where there is no other escape or no or no easy one. So, you know, I'm very despite <coughs> excuse me, despite my background as a, as a law enforcement agent and my belief in, in law enforcement as as a tool uh, to deal with this problem. Um I'm not blind to the fact that this is a um, it's a, soci- a sociological problem as much as it is a law enforcement problem. You know, that, that this is sort of thing that you can't easily to use a phrase that others have. It can't easily arrest your way out of. Right. And you have to get at some of the underlying causes for why people turn to these things. Um, you know, the, I definitely believe in this idea of substance abuse disorder and, and, and that we have a, a whole generation now that. Uh, really struggles with with addiction and with these problems. Um, And it's not something that I, as a law enforcement agent, can solve on my own. And about that addiction, I I would venture to say that there are people who don't know they have that tendency wrapped into their um, chemical makeup and that they think, oh, no, I'm fine. I got this covered. And it isn't until it grips them around. It grabs them, right? And, and and it's interesting because the other books that I wrote, there were very, you know, the, the drug trafficking trade as it was portrayed in those books was that that we've seen most often, I think, on TV. You know, you had cartels and very, you know, bad guy cartel figures and, and lots of dope and, and hidden in trucks. And, you know, that's the sort of stuff that we saw at that level out you know, out West in those books I was writing, but here in, in Lost River, we've, it's all come across the country. And now it's not, you know, big loads smuggled across the border. It's, it's small amounts that are, that are being brought into, uh, you know, small communities and into people's homes and really seeing the, the end result of the sort of activity that, that I kind of highlighted in, in the first few books, how it's just become, you know, endemic to many of these uh, communities. From best-selling author J. Todd Scott comes a blistering crime novel of the opioid epidemic so brutal it will haunt you for weeks after reading. Over the course of 24 hours, loyalties are tested, the corrupt are exposed, and the horrible truth of the largest drug operation in Angel, Kentucky is revealed. Lost River, a book Kirkus Reviews calls tense, brutal, and satisfying for all thriller fans. Pick up a copy of Lost River today. You're listening to The Thriller Zone, and now back to the show. So to go back and kind of put a fine point on that, is what we read in Lost River very reflective of what you see every day in your job? Yeah, I, I absolutely wow. did. Right, and... and you know, and you don't like to admit that, but I think I think it's very true to life, and I wanted it to be. Um, and um, you know, it's troubling, but I think it shows how 
you know, these addiction problems have a disintegrating effect on families and the communities that they that they take hold in. Yeah. And you know what? I got to admit that your prose, while depressing and it's really more about the story, not your prose, but you're, it's because it's just a sad world that they live in. It did make it was vivid and it was memorable. And I certainly walked away haunted by this world, I think, because I like many of our listeners, don't really have access to it. You you see a world that we hear about and we watch on television and we read about, but we think, well, it's not really quite that bad. But uh, I got to think, you're what are you, 25 years into the business now, roughly? Yeah, uh, almost 27 at this point. Wow. Yeah. So you've seen it all. And, and that begs the question, can you think of some things that you've seen that you thought, okay, it couldn't possibly have been that bad, but you finally saw it? Um. Well, you know, the, there's um, a scene in, in the book, actually, where where um, it's, it's kind of a recreation of something where happened where, you know, we were doing an overdose case and went to a family, knocked on the door, and the mother said something to the effect of, are you here to tell me my son is dead? And, you know, because she had been living with this problem in this, in this uh, you know, addictive child of her for so long that she when she saw a guy with a badge around his neck outside the door her assumption was that he was dead yeah. and that he it was an overdose right um that's just where her, her her mind went first and that you know that's you know heartbreaking given the work the work that we do um you know but obviously when i was on on the border and, and the violence that you saw there and you know that kind of staggered the imagination and then when i worked overseas you know i was in in haiti for two years and obviously haiti's quite a bit in, in the news now but the scope of drug trafficking that was occurring on the shores of haiti in and around haiti that was you know i could you know i felt like i was in a movie right i mean you, you've got a plane with 800 kilos of cocaine in it and you're like and this plane is sitting on a beach and it's just flown in and the pilot flew in with night vision goggles. And they torn the seats out of the plane to fill it full of gas tanks so they could have the extra fuel they needed to fly over. I mean, you see that stuff and, you know, you're like, I, I couldn't if I now I wasn't writing at the time. But like, I couldn't have written that. I could have dreamed that up if, if I was writing a novel. Wow. Right? So you see it there in person. Well, you got some material for your next one, <laughs> which begs the question, uh, none of these books they were all standalones, weren't they? Well, the I mean, the first three are, are a trilogy in a sense. They kind of deal with some of the same characters and, and occur over a course of time. But they, they stand alone in kind of the core story. Right. You can eat, read each one and, and not have to touch the others, uh, which I kind of wanted to do. So that way someone picked up uh, the odd book on its own and read it. Uh, they would get a complete story and not feel like they had no idea what was going on and who these people were. Sure. Um, and each book kind of introduces some new characters to flush out that, that world in, in the big Ben. This is uh, absolutely a, a standalone book. Um, and uh, you know, the, what I have, what'll be coming out next year will be as well too. So, okay. So you answered my next question, what, which was, uh, is there any more of that coming along? So, uh, Casey Alexander, uh, I really, really enjoyed her. As a, so she's a female agent. I'm going to ask you something that I've been asked about one of my characters, which was Detective Pat Norelli over there over my shoulder. Why write a female lead? Um, only difference between yours and mine, yours being uh, infinitely better. Uh, mine was first, first person, but... <laughs> uh, I think it goes without saying. But anyway, why, uh, why a female lead? Any particular reason? Um, 
you know, I had written significant male characters and male lead characters in my other books. And again, it's kind of challenging myself. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to assume or presuppose that I can write uh, a, a, uh, a female character any better than a female writer could right. in any way, shape or form. But, um, you know, you had Paul as, you know, as, as a male character and you had Trey and it just kind of seemed to make sense to me. Plus I had that image of um, Casey in uh, or, or a female uh, picking up that baby in that one scene in the in, in the book and the kind of um, juxtaposition of all that violence and here's this tough bitten female federal agent holding a baby, which was about the last thing she wanted to do at that point in time. And so that image struck with me. And so I thought I would take a stab at making Casey, um, you know, a, a female agent as opposed to a you know, the typical guy like myself. And then also I've been fortunate to work with some fantastic female agents and um, Casey's got bits and pieces of several of them uh, in her. And I wanted to highlight to people who didn't, weren't aware that DEA, just like FBI and other agencies, we have great female agents at all levels, agents, supervisor, whatnot. And um, I want to kind of honor some of the great female agents that I've worked with. My first training agent was was a female agent. Um, and uh, I've worked with some great undercover female agents in, uh, on uh, things. So it was just kind of an opportunity to shine a light on uh, some folks that I've worked with. Well, I want to I want to go back to that scene because th- that scene is practically worth the price of admission the way that you crafted that scene and um, her humanity and her, there's just so many aspects and so many things going through in my head that I love that scene. I want to ask this, and it's a, it's a similar question. I ask a lot of writers uh, seasoned and otherwise, how far back do you recall thinking to yourself, you know what? I think I'd be good at this. So let's, let's juxtapose how long uh, that you thought I'd be good at this and how long before you felt that you actually were good? Well, I, I know I wanted to do it, as I said, when I was really young. Right. I mean, I can remember being very young, seven, eight, nine, ten years old and scribbling stuff down. Yeah. And, you, know, you had this competition where you could make your own book in like grade school. And I stitched together a book and it was uh, my story involved a space station and sharks and all sorts of stuff. But even then it had like an epilogue and a prologue, you know, it was too long and multiple points of view. Yeah. You know, it, it was kind of this massive Stephen King like book for like a nine year old and Sharknado. Right. Sharknado. And so I just, I knew then that I wanted to do it. And I wrote pretty diligently throughout high school and the earlier parts of college. Um, and then just kind of thought, maybe I'm just not that good at this. Right. And, and, life took over and, and you thought you know, I'm going to do something more practical. Now, I don't know becoming a federal agent and living all over the world was more practical, but it was something that I, I ended up doing my second love at the time. Sure. And um, I kind of let the whole writing thing sit for many, many years. And I read, I was a voracious reader and, you know, I might take a stab at a story here and there or a scene here and there, but didn't really get um, serious about it um, until a few years ago when I said, if I don't actually try this, I'm going to regret never trying seriously at it. I don't know that I thought I was any good when I started writing again, but I didn't think I was bad. Right. Right. Like I had read enough. I mean, and I'm sure you have. You read enough stories. You're like, I can tell a story. Like right. I can narrate a story. I can tell a story. I know the beats. I know the acts. I know kind of where things happen. You know, you just have an intuitive sense of how to tell a story. Sure. And I knew I could do that 
pretty easily. And I knew I could dream up some pretty good phrases because I like language and I'd studied a lot of writers. And the question was, could I do that, you know, for 300 some odd pages? And sure. I didn't, like I said, I didn't know that I was good. I didn't think I was good. I just didn't think I was bad. Right. That's you fair. And I both have read bad writing and I've read a lot of bad DEA reports where I'm like, you know, these guys need to go back and learn some basic English. So, and I still don't know that I'm, that I'm good, but I still don't think that I'm bad. Got it. So, you know, I just, um, and you know, I, I don't, I have this weird habit that I don't go back and look at my books at all after they're published. Like a, it's like I touching a live snake. I don't want to have any part of it because I'll read a, a chapter or read something and think, God, this is horrible. Like I can, I'm rewriting it already in my head. And, and at some <laughs> point you have to give up on a book and, and let it go. Sure. And I don't do that very easily when I go back and read them. I'm like, ah, oh, that sounds horrible. I should have written this better. I should have. So I, I kind of just write a book, turn it over, let whatever happens, happens and move on to the next one. And I rarely go back and read any of my books at all, if I can help it. So, you know, I'm still self-conscious about it. And I still want to get better with every, every book, you know, some days the writing is easy. Some days it's not sure. I don't know that I'm good, but I don't think I'm bad. God, there's so many things that go through my head. First of all, um, we're our worst critic. Right. Uh, secondly, I never go back and read my stuff because the minute I do, just like you said, I start going, Oh wait, hold on a second. I could change yeah. that. <laughs> really? What are you doing? It's already been printed. It's out there. Shut up. Move on. As though there, uh, as though the magic won't strike you, the lightning won't strike again. It'll strike again. If that's what you want to do, and you have an imagination, it'll strike. And as you were talking about studying, I thought, well, what? Did, who did you study? Who did you follow? Who were some of the guys that you were reading uh, as you were growing up, and you were thinking, growing up young, growing up middle aged, and you were thinking, boy, this cat's got it. I don't necessarily want to be like him or duplicate him, but. Boy, that's that's what makes me tick. Well, different writers for different things, you know, for kind of a sense of, of language and place and kind of a, a noir realism. I, I really like James Carlos Blake. Um, James El, Elroy uh, is a great author with how he uses uh, language. James Lee Burke, you know, tells great stories and is, you know, has this ability to to write these wonderful characters that that resonate Curiously enough, I think Stephen King is a great a, a great writer. His ability to kind of pull you into a story, and he had a way of making everything uh, seem so real because he would you know just casually drop place names, and it wasn't just a cigarette; it was a Marlboro cigarette. It wasn't just a beer; it was a Pabst Blue Ribbon, right? And sure. it was just these kind of, he had these kind of fine details that seemed so simple when you read it, yeah. but it gave every book this three dimensional kind of kind of texture to it. And I have admittedly kind of robbed that from him. So I, I try to kind of you know it's not just a gas station; it's a mobile. It's not just right. you know you you name your towns and you name your places and you name your radio stations. And oh, so yeah. that way it has this sense of lived in, like all of Stephen King's books feel very lived in. And so that's kind of what I like to do with mine as well. So, you know, I kind of beg, borrow and steal something from everyone later, a little later in life, it's Cormac McCarthy, um, who's kind of ability to really write casual violence in a way that can catch the reader off guard. Um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to do that. So all of those writers and many others, but those are, are ones that, I, you know, kind of I have read again and again or come back to again and again. For a while there, I thought you were going to only like guys who started with the name James. James, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> 
Stephen King, great company. Uh, you said a similar thing that Meg Gardner had on the show recently said is uh, that lived in ability and that you, you became so uh, intimate with the characters on so many levels. Cormac McCarthy is an interesting one. And I went to a thriller fest back in 2019 and one of the gals speaking uh, said, you know, just sang the praises of Cormac over and over and over. And then I finally picked up some because uh, I hated to admit, but I had not uh, heard or read any of his work. And it's a very acquired taste in one sense. But you're right. The casual violence, that that's part of you. You have a nuance of that because it's the juxtaposition of normalcy and then violence. You can be walking through a normal day, normal gas station, picking up a soda, and then all of a sudden, kaboom. And you're like, holy shit, where did, the, you know, right. it's the juxtaposition that I love that you do. Yeah. And, 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 and Cormac McCarthy has a way of doing that. And he is, he's an acquired taste. You know, he's he has these, uh, you know, kind of pyrotechnics, this writing pyrotechnics, right? Like if you know, no one else can really write the way he writes, you know, it's clearly the way he thinks, you know, and, and there's kind of a poetry to his writing. And, you know, I can't do that, but I definitely can appreciate what he does and how he kind of crafts uh, language. And, you know, he, he can make a, a simple thing kind of indelible with just how he the rhythm of the sentences that he puts together. Yeah. You make me think of the scene in. Uh, uh, no. Oh, geez, I'm going to mess. No country for old men. Yes. Thank you. How did you. <laughs> I'm like, no country, old man. There's a country and a man and an old and so like when what's his face comes in with the uh, he, he's he's in the. um gas station and he's talking about flipping the coin coin, right who else in the whole world can take a a relatively innocuous conversation and about flipping a coin and then seeing the terror on the man's face it was yeah yeah and just again freighting that entire conversation that entire interaction with such kind of the threat of violence with so little being said and so little being done um, and you know, I, I love no country for old men. I love blood Meridian. I, I'm a fan of Westerns and sure. my first three books were kind of more modern Westerns. Uh, but I think my favorite Cormac McCarthy book is the road, um, which just has incredible imagery and, you know, it, it's a tremendously profoundly, um, sad book, but moving book too. And, um, as I said, he, he's kind of a one, of, one of a kind in what he does. Uh, two things, uh, he's the only guy I know who can get away with not putting any punctuation anywhere. (laughs) And does, did the agent, it's kind of rhetorical. Did the agent along the way go, uh, who's this guy? He doesn't use any damn, uh, there's no commas. There's no quotes. And I'm thinking to myself, is it because he did it and that was his signature and that's cool? Part A, part B is I've noticed some of my Brit friends, they use a single quote. And I think to my, I think as I'm typing, I'm like, what makes us have to do that extra move? I know this is a tangent, that extra move type to get the double quote versus single quote. When you know that a quote, a single slash in and of itself, McCormick notwithstanding, uh, signifies the fact that someone is talking. I'm like, who decided that? That side of the pond gets to do one, and this side of the pond has to do two. 
Well, and it's interesting, you know, I think Cormac McCarthy's brilliance would be discovered at any time. But I think from a publishing standpoint, it's much you don't have a lot of authors who are brought along and allowed to develop and kind of, you know, I I don't think the big five publishers now really are going to take an author and just kind of let them build book after book after book after book after book. It's easier to go get a a debut author and see if that person, you know, strikes gold. And and so you sometimes wonder these authors that we have grown to, to, to love you know, would they get the same attention if they were coming up now? Would they be allowed to build up and build an audience and some of these things that they can do now if they turned in a manuscript to an agent, you know, at Thriller Fest, right? Right. <laughs> you know, that agent say, this is ridiculous. You know, I can't publish this, right? I can't see this being printed and put put in an airport. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think I hope there's room for that sort of innovation. Um, but it feels sometimes that, uh, it's a lot more difficult to, to 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 have those super super unique voices, um, or it's harder to discover them, or they don't have as given as much chance to to breathe. And and from a grammar and writing standpoint, I, I'm a sucker for uh, italics. I italicize all sorts of things. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, well, and and my that drives my editors batty. Uh, yeah. Italics and ellipses, I use those. And now I've gotten because from screenwriting, I've gotten used gotten into using the in dash a lot and so um you know uh, it's uh, these things that you go back when you read your own stuff you're like yeah i really do use a lot of you know dashes or italics 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 yeah i'm an in dash whore that's for sure there i'm admitted <laughs> hi my name is david i have an abuse of m dashes hi my name is todd i like italics yes <laughs> hi todd <laughs> I think the best compliment I can pay you is that when I was reading this book, I felt the presence of Elmore Leonard. Yes. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Because I, I've read some of the Westerns early on and then the, the, a lot of the cop shows, but uh, cop books, but what he had the ability to do, and I, I don't know where I heard or read this. I think it was him. Just what, uh, what did he say? I, I just, I, after I'm done, I go back and take out every possible unnecessary word. And when I first heard that, I'm like, well, why would you spend all this time using all these beautiful words only to take them out? And But as I've read it, and then when I read your work, and I was really feeling Elmore Leonard, big, big fan, I thought, there's so much unnecessary verbiage that we use when we don't need to. Right. Well, and, and I am, I think my first three books are, are guilty of this. I wanted to be perceived as a good writer. Or you asked me a question, right? Do you think you're good, right? Yeah. I wanted people to read a, a book of mine or, or a short story of mine and say, man, that guy could really write, right? Like I yeah. wanted that technical proficiency sure. that people, right? Uh, it's kind of like if you're a basketball player, you want people to say, man, that guy can really shoot, oh, yeah. right? And, um, so I think I overwrote, I overtried, right? I think there's too much, you know, I've talked with this about other authors, like, you know, I just wanted to be, try so hard to be so good. I just wrote a lot. And, you know, I think that's the biggest fault of those, those earlier books is they're just too long and too verbose because I wanted to, because first of all, I had an audience and like, I got to write as much as I can because God knows people are going to stop reading this stuff. Right. So it's like any idea I had, it's like the second album syndrome, you know, sure. you the second album and you just throw every 
you know, every song you've ever written on there because it's maybe the only one. Yeah. So I, I think I really um, pushed on those books to kind of throw everything that interested me or that I wanted to write about in there. And then I started thinking about, you know, if you're in a bookstore and you're p- picking up a J. Todd Scott book and it's 125,000 words and you're like, man, I just don't know if I want to take a bite on that. And so, you know, again, part of the craft of trying to get better is with Lost River, I made a conscious of a real conscious effort to try to rein in my own excesses, right? You know, I mean, I like big books. I like books that take a while to get wound up and get going, right? I I don't mind a 50-page prologue and a 60-page epilogue, right? I don't mind wine. As a reader, I don't mind those things. Um, And as a writer, I clearly don't mind them. But I thought with Lost River, I wanted to get, I thought it it was a, a great story that I would undermine if I fell prey to some of my kind of classic, uh, you know, crutches or, 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 sure. or things for. So I tried really hard with Lost River. If it didn't matter, if it didn't propel the story forward, if it didn't, like if those words, if I didn't need those words, no matter how pretty they were, I mean, I don't have, I didn't, I didn't have to write about every sunset and every, every bird flying over, um, you know, the town, um, then that stuff came out. And uh, just tried to focus on on the narrative, the, the main, the meat of the narrative. And back to that point, there's, uh, and I caught myself several times as I'm reading. You're deep into the dialogue, and you'll lay you'll lay a sentence in, a very short little sentence that gives uh, perspective to what's happening at the moment. It could be something as innocuous as. He scratched his arm and he scratched it again. And then you realize, well, is it a nervous tick? And the mosquitoes are out. Something like that. Just enough that it gives you, it, it, it provides place, moment. Right. But it doesn't belabor it. It doesn't, it doesn't belabor it. Oh, the way he scratched it was profound. And the way that he stroked his skin, it's so eloquent. You know? <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and I did probably more of that in, in the Western books because, again, I wanted those books to feel epic and I wanted them to feel Western. Yeah. And, I, you know, I kind of I've told people before I wanted those to feel like those big John Ford films, you know, the 70 millimeter Panavision. You know, you see the entire range at one time. Oh, yeah. And I wrote those books that way, you know, consciously. Um, but, you know, that you, you don't have to use that same tool, you know. Uh, on every book and i thought this book needed to have a smaller more intimate scope and the the dialogue mattered the interaction characters mattered and you know i i just did use a different set of brushes with this painting than i had on some of the some of the others i get a real sense todd that you're the kind of guy i i think i can say this pretty confidently you're the kind of guy that if if all of a sudden um uh, your publisher agent didn't want you to do another book or wasn't loving what you were doing um or or there was a fall off an audience we'll call it what it is that you would probably be one of those guys that went i'm just going to keep writing because i'll tell you what i like it and i got this idea of a story i'm just going to keep going yep yeah that's exactly how how i how i treat it um i said i get up every morning i write every day i get up every morning it's the thing i do first in the day it's the best part of my day uh and that's saying a lot because i love my i love my job um but it's my time to myself and you know i've had four published books i've got you know more coming but i've got you know a couple three books that are just sitting in drawers that i wrote because they didn't really have a home i knew them when i wrote them they didn't have a home they weren't kind of within my 
genre. You know, I, I, I didn't even show them to, you know, my agent or my editor. Cause I'm like, this, this is a book I wrote just cause I wanted to write it. And maybe eventually it'll have a place, but I was content to knock off a book that interested me and I can write a book, put it in a drawer and move on to the next one and not lose a lot of, a, a lot of sleep about that because I, I enjoy the process of writing. I enjoy telling stories in every book I write is a story I want to tell myself. That's right? awesome. And so I want to know how it ends and I want to see if I can do it. And it, it, it doesn't, I say this in a way that that's, I don't mean to be egotistical, but it doesn't matter if anyone else reads it. Uh, you know, I say that being a published author, but sure, it doesn't sure. matter if someone else reads it. Um, because I was going to write it anyway, I'm going to finish it anyway. And, um, uh, I hope people like them and want to read them and, and I can keep getting published. But at the end of the day, I'm going to keep writing kind of no matter what. Now it's, it's taken me, you know, 20 plus years to start up again. Mm-hmm. And now I can't turn the faucet off. So I just kind of, kind of keep doing it. That's a good problem to have. We're coming up on the, at the end of our time, but I do, I want, I, I want to ask a couple of technical questions and we're going to go into a little tiny bit of fun at the wrap up. And that is this, what would you say are the top three must haves for a DEA agent? Because I think I'm like, could I be that? What would it take? What's just, Uh, yeah, I think persistence, um, creativity, because a lot of our investigations are really only, only hindered by our creativity. We have a lot of tools and techniques and, and tactics nowadays. And we have a lot of ways to, to do these investigations, but you kind of have to be forward thinking. So I'd say persistence, uh, creativity, and I think empathy, um, honestly, you know, uh, law enforcement, it's kind of been in the news a lot lately and, you know, for not great reasons, um, we're given tremendous authority and tremendous responsibility. And I think if you don't take that seriously and you don't use it judiciously, then you're not doing your, your job. And that's a theme that I come back to again and again and again in the Big Ben books about the weight of carrying a badge and a gun. You know, we have the ability and sometimes are required to to take people's liberty and and in the worst situations, their lives. And I think you have to be empathetic with the people that you're dealing with um, to temper that responsibility and authority that you have. Wow. Profound. On the other side of that empathy, um, what would you say, I think it's on the other side of the empathy, what's the scariest or most intimidating, could be intimidating, dangerous aspect of being an agent? Um, I think it is every time you go through a door and when you do a search warrant in that moment, it's kind of like stepping out of a plane with a, you know, oh yeah, the parachute and you hope it opens. Yeah. Every time you go through that door, no matter if you've been in the house a hundred times, no matter if you have pictures of it, video of it, map of it, even if you're a hundred percent certain of what you're going to find on the other side of that door, you're always wrong. I mean, it's just, it's never what you think it's going to be. And, you know, you know that you're going to interact with somebody who most of the time does not want you in their home and does definitely not want to go to jail. And, um, you know, I, I've been doing this a long time and kicked in a lot of doors and every time it's nerve wracking the minute you go through that door. I can't even, but it's funny that you should mention that jumping out of a plane because I'm assuming you have 
And that that first two seconds, it's so unconsciously terrifying that you you have 10 thoughts at once in the span of a split nanosecond. And then within seconds, you're like, oh, of course I'm doing this. This is so great. Yeah, yeah. I don't find, I never found undercover as nerve wracking as going through a door. Oh, wow. You know, undercover to me was, you know, it's, it's challenging and it's difficult and it can be a little hairy at times, but I always felt a lot more control over the situation, curiously enough, doing undercover than I did kicking in a door. You have to be a good actor to be undercover too, wouldn't you? Yeah, you have to be a good actor and you have to be willing to talk, which I don't have a problem with doing. So yeah. you get a long way by just bullshitting. <laughs> you know, it's really, I'm going to, I'm going to call this out because you're one of the only people I've ever met that as I was starting to correspond with you, you couldn't have talked any less if it was possible. I, I mean, very little communication. And I turned to my wife the other day. I'm like, I'm not sure. I can't, I don't know if it's Jay, Jay Todd, Todd, Mr. Scott. I don't know if he even wants to talk to me. He doesn't really act that interested. And now that I've met you and I'm like, oh my God, I, we'd sit around and drink beer and scotch or oh, whiskey yeah. all no. day long. But yeah, And that was more of a function of, of the last month I've been traveling a bunch. I've yeah. been, I don't normally have to travel as much for my job anymore, but I did. And so I was just in and out and traveling and um, you know, so no, I didn't mean to give that impression, but, uh, no, I, I, I knew you were going to do a great job. I knew I was going to enjoy talking with you and I figured we'd just uh, do it here on air. So. Cool. Okay. Well, and I wasn't sure. I don't, I didn't know if you were still on the job. Uh, I didn't know if you had already, you'd struck it so big and rich that all you did was sit around by your pool and write books, you know? No, no, I'm still, I'm still on the job and, um, I could retire, but I still love doing what I do. So I'm going to do a little bit longer. Uh, they were mandatory at some point they kick us out. And unfortunately I'm coming close to that. Uh, so, uh, which you know that everything has its time. So I'll be ready when, when that time comes, but I still enjoy doing what I'm doing. And I don't, I, I'm kind of a supervisor now. I got all these young agents. They run out and do all the hard stuff. I just sign the paperwork to make sure they do it smart and safe. Nice. Well, and at 40, that'd be really retiring early, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. If I was 40, <laughs> All right, here's the last uh, wrap-up. Uh, pen and paper or keyboard? Uh, keyboard. Okay. Uh, music in the background or silence? Uh, weird. I have, my kids call it whale music. Uh, if I'm writing a first draft, I can only listen to, like, kind of ambient, like I said, whale music, right? Right. I can't listen to anything with lyrics while I'm writing a first draft yeah. uh, for whatever reason. But if I'm deep into my second or third pass revisions, then I can actually listen to, to other music. And I'll sometimes put playlists together of songs that kind of match the, the book or whatever, but that's way down the process. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm right there with you. I use, um, ambient music, which is, uh, uh not particularly melodic. Um, it's sometimes called uh, meditation music. It can be chimes, it can be bells, it can be whales. I mean, it's be water running, but that, that, so it'll distract part of your brain, but it doesn't engage that part of your brain. Right. And and songs with lyrics engage that other part of your brain. And now you're pulling in other people's words and thoughts. And and so, uh, yeah, I I use that. My kids call it whale music. They go, oh, dad, he's writing again. He's got his whale music on. And when you write, do you like to go on location to where you might be planting the story, or are you pretty much at home? I'm pretty much at home. I mean, most of my stories were 
in places that I had lived or were living, so they were familiar to me. Uh, but I'm a very consistent writer. I get up at oh dark thirty every day. Uh, it's the, I write in the morning in a darkened room uh, with my whale music on uh, before anyone else gets up or anyone else is moving around before I go to work, and I try to knock out a couple hours uh, before I you know shower up and head up to the office. And I do that seven days a week. I'm I'm a hundred percent with you. I might not do seven, but I aim for six. And uh, that quiet when nothing is happening is such a rich place to be because there's no distraction, first of all. But more importantly, your uh, subconscious and conscious hasn't been polluted. You know, you've just spent six to eight hours rebuilding your body and refreshing, but it hasn't been polluted by, oh, I got to do social media. Oh, I got emails or whatever. And it's... it's uh... Yeah, and, and there's a thing in that we're taught when we are, are shooting as agents going through, you know, muscle memory, mm-hmm. you know, kind of doing things the same way over and over again, you know, how you draw your gun and do that. And writing is muscle memory for me as well. So yeah, I kind of do it the same way. I get up kind of the same time. So my brain is already firing on all writing cylinders. The minute I get up, sometimes I'm, I lay there awake and I'm writing in my head before I get up. And, and so my body and brain are just kind of engaged and ready to go. When I first started writing again, I, I was trying to write at night and that was just a disaster because as you said, the end of the day, I was worn out and just couldn't unwind and focus on what I wanted to do. And although I wasn't naturally a morning person, I said, the only way I'm going to do this consistently is to switch it completely how I live my life and, and get up really early, go to bed early yeah. uh, in order to, to make that time I needed to get my writing done. Cause any other way to do it just wasn't successful. Yeah. I'm a nine 30 to four 30 guy. Yeah. Yeah. I like to go to bed early and then get up way before anybody's even thinking about making noise. Um, here you go. Two part question. As we close, if you could travel back in time and sit down and talk to your younger self, what would you tell him be sure to do? And what would you tell him be sure not to do? Wow. Um, That's a good one. Isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is a good one. And, you know, if you're talking about writing, I don't know. It could be writing. It could just be your I mean, wisdom I, of might, your it might be take better notes okay. because I have done some great things, but, you know, or, or interesting things. But I don't know. I, I kind of I, I've had this discussion with friends and other writers, right? Like what would have been different, how my life would have been different if I would started writing a lot earlier. Right. Right. You know, what I've had a different career path. Right. You know, uh, um, if I started writing seriously earlier and I, I don't know, I kind of think everything happened the way it was supposed to. If I tried to write earlier, maybe I would have gotten a lot more frustrated with it. You know, uh, so I don't think my writing career would have been a hell of a lot different. And it kind of happened when it happened. You know, I was writing the right books at the right time. I had the right attitude about it. So I don't know that I would tell my earlier self to do anything much different. Okay. Um, because it kind of worked out okay. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, probably tell, you know, I, I'm divorced. So I'd probably tell myself to probably fr- approach that first marriage a little different. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, this job can can take a toll on on families and, and relationships. And, um, you know, I definitely jumped into being an agent with both feet and the long hours and the travel and all of that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, maybe I'd tell myself to, to back down the, the engines a, a little bit uh, earlier. But well, hindsight, uh, wisdom is uh, that hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Right. Exactly. All right. Here's your, 
Which, Everything kind of worked out the way it was supposed to, and I, I feel pretty good. So, you know, there's a line in a Tom Petty song on the album "Wallflower," a wildflower, and the line goes, "Most of what I worried about doesn't happen anyway." Exactly. And I try to use that in my life. You know, you can sit around and worry about what if I do this, what if I don't do that. Hey, maybe it's going to happen anyway. So why don't you just do what makes you happy and just keep moving forward. All right. What is the last or current craft beer or whiskey that you drank or are drinking? What's, what's something that comes to your mind? You're going, Ooh, I just had this because I, I stalked your Instagram and I saw that you're a big <laughs> fan. So, uh, yes. Well, the last, uh, bourbon that I had is, uh, there's a, a small distillery, uh, right here in Louisville called peerless, uh, P E E R L E S S peerless. Uh-huh. Uh, and they have a long history. They're small, really, really kind of, um, almost micro distillery, but they do uh, great, great, um, uh, batches. And so, uh, I, I have a couple of different bottles of theirs. So I had uh, some, uh, peerless and there are, uh, multiple, very good, uh, breweries here around Kentucky as well. And there's one right up the street for me. They have an outdoor beer garden. It's called third turn, uh, brewing. And they have a kind of new England style IPA called pineapple monkey. Oh, and, uh, uh, I had, uh, I got a growler of that. Um, and you know, they have rotating taps. It changes every, every, uh, week or so. And so you never know quite what you're going to f- find. Um, but, uh, I kind of like the haze, the last year or so I've kind of gotten into the, the, um, hazier IPAs. And I also have, uh, one called Tropic Haze by Braxton Brewing, which is, I think out of Lexington, but that's local here as well. I'm, I'm, be- I'm beginning to think that we're twin brothers of different mothers <laughs> because we got some really weird six, uh, similarities. I'm telling you what, I, I love hazies, and now I'm onto this hazy, juicy crave uh, yes. craze, which is a combination of the IPA. I want to throw this invitation if you're ever out this way, because I know you did work out this way. San Diego is one of the premier craft beer meccas of the world. So you come out here, it's on me. We're going to have plenty of craft beer. Absolutely. And I'll take you up on that. All and right. I am not cheap. I'll let you know right now. <laughs> That's okay. I can hang. And, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to investigate not only pineapple monkey, but I'm going to check this peerless out. I'm always looking for a good, you know, especially if it's craft bourbon. And I, and I love the fact that there are manufacturers out now doing all this craft work. It, you know, it was just craft beer. Then it's craft gins and craft bourbons and, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Kentucky is part of the bourbon trail, and we've got numerous distilleries, and I don't want to offend all of them out there. I've, I've sampled something from all of them, Perfect. but Peerless just happens to be the most recent, and it's, curiously enough, very close to my office. So It's just about what you had last. Everybody else, there's plenty of room for everybody. That is true. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic, and I, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled that you had me on. It's been a great conversation. And can you throw at us uh, a little sneak peek of what's next? Do you have, is that even? Yeah, I, I can. It's, you know, I said each book, I kind of challenge myself to do something a little bit different. And, and actually the book that that's tentatively set to come out September of next year 
is a pivot from these these kind of harder crime novels I've done. Uh, it's a book about a cult, actually, and um, it's told in a very unique way. It has its uh, or, you know regular narrative, but it's told with also a lot of epistolary uh, material, so uh, fake newspaper articles and uh, court transcripts and FBI reports and all of this stuff kind of follows um, this. Uh, organization over kind of a 10-year period, and as you kind of see it from social media and regular media and all these events that uh, obviously there's a kind of crime and stuff at the heart of it, but I'd always wanted to write a book about um, a a cult, and finally the pandemic kind of provided a a hole in my calendar to do it, and I I knocked it out, and uh, um, some folks really love it, and so it's going to be out next year. Awesome. And maybe you can circle back around and we can uh, get you back on the Thriller Zone right before it launches. Yeah, that, that, that would be great. This is, uh, you know, the others are kind of slow burn crime novels. This is more, much more of a straight up, I'd say, kind of high octane thriller. Oh, I love high octane thrillers, baby. <laughs> Todd, once again, it, it's been a great, great time. And I, I'm so appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Another big thanks to J. Todd Scott for stopping by the Thriller Zone. Stay safe out there, buddy. On next week's show, I'm pleased to announce our special guest will be New York Times bestselling author and the world's foremost authority on protective intelligence, security, and executive protection, Fred Burton. Fred served on the front lines of high-profile investigations like the hunt for and arrest of Ramzi Youssef, the mastermind behind the first World Trade Center bombing. He's also the author of several popular books, including the one we'll discuss, Beirut Rules, The Murder of a CIA Station Chief and Hezbollah's War Against America. Please make plans to listen, and I hope you'll tell your friends and share on your social media channels. I'll see you next time when we get in the Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.